Hello, Dr. Greg here with a special edition of Here's What I Can Say. This one is going to be covering the claims made and statements made in the documentary Plandemic. I guess this is actually just part one of many, and boy, this is a, this is a good one. Uh, I just went, so I watched the whole thing, and it was it was quite painful, to be honest, but, uh, you know, I wanted to address it since people have been sharing it, asking me about it, posting it in doctor's forums and anti-vaccine forums everywhere, um, so I wanted to see what they were talking about, and then do a little reading on my own to investigate some of the stuff that I didn't understand. So I'll go through um, some of the things said that I took particular issue with that I was able to uh, find evidence to either refute, challenge, or question these claims. So the first one that Dr. Mikovits makes, as she said, it's very clear that COVID was made in a lab and then make some odd statement about how it would take 800 years for it to evolve to become that. In March of 2017, in an article in Nature Medicine, they actually did a study to look at how the virus most likely came about, um, comparing it to its sort of closest relative, the SARS-CoV virus, whereas um, coronavirus, the COVID-19 we're dealing with, is SARS-CoV-2. And some of the ways that they looked at to sort of assess was this a naturally occurring virus or a synthesized virus is you can take sort of computer predictions to figure out ways to make an optimized virus, um, which is essentially what you would be working on in a lab. So you would try to optimize a virus in various ways, and they kind of identified just one of you know one of the main targets that we talk about for for covid is the ace2 receptor on the virus so um it's kind of a ace2 is kind of a strange molecule that you especially find in the lungs and it's just as they predicted was a kind of an odd target for the virus and the sort of optimization they looked at showed that it was kind of a bad target and Something I guess important to understand is that like when people think about evolution, they often think about things being sort of maximized for survival and killing and winning, etc. Um, but it's far more random than that um, and nuanced. And I think we're, we don't really get enough education in the, the subtleties of evolution. And, and then people kind of carry that with them through life and more often than not it doesn't really matter how well they understand evolution but in cases like this when you can better see that the randomness in the process of evolution would create something like this that's not nearly as well optimized unless maybe it had 800 years that it would become more like what the computer predictions would have come up with but instead we get the SARS-CoV-2 and stuff so uh, the other way that they looked at it is they looked at the genetic material and analyzed it and compared it to the um, the original SARS-CoV and they discussed this um, this process in disease manufacturing that um, it's kind of part of 
uh, are a sign of like how we're not, or we have work to do as far as like synthesizing viruses go. Because the, the process is called reverse genetics and essentially leaves a signature behind that shows or demonstrates that you made this in a lab and there's no detectable sign of it. So they're either someone who's well advanced in engineering viruses that they somehow bypass this, um, which, you know, could be possible, but I'd say looking at what's most likely, uh, you're, you're looking at something that naturally happened. Now, the other thing about it is if that information was suppressed about some sort of evil engineer, uh, it's interesting that this documentary is all over the internet and somehow Judy Mikovits is, is, has not been murdered by the shadow government, at least not yet. Another claim that she makes in this documentary is that no RNA virus vaccine, no effective RNA virus vaccine has been made. Um, also completely untrue. Polio virus, measles, mumps, those are all RNA viruses that we have pretty good vaccines for. Flu virus is an RNA virus, and while it's not the best vaccine that we have, it's still pretty good. I, I think of the flu vaccine, which I'll discuss in a future episode, probably if I'm lucky this weekend, um, that uh, it's kind of like a seatbelt. If you wear your seatbelt and you get in an accident, you have a higher chance of survival. Um, but, the, but you know, there's always a possibility that there's some kind of uh, complication with the seatbelt that caused an issue that you may have not had without the seatbelt. However, odds are it's going to help you, so everybody puts on their seatbelt. Now, the next one, um, she cites the, uh, the quoted statement from the, the government about the liberal diagnostic approach and there being pressure to add COVID to people's diagnosis. Um, I, I talked about this in the last episode that clinical judgment is, is really important when it comes to, to figuring out the diagnosis, especially when testing is limited and largely not as well available as it should be um, in order to get accurate numbers on it. So you, you based your, your diagnosis on as much objective data as possible, but ultimately you have to make judgment calls at times and, you know, you're working with limited resources. So the less you can waste when there's a clear-cut case, the better, unless you do have the resources available. So it's, it's kind of a misinterpretation. Um, and then they, and then they cite how, you know, the, a chest x-ray of somebody with maybe COPD or pulmonary fibrosis might look or a CT might look similar to somebody with COVID and then just assumes that if somebody dies from complications from that other illness, they're going to just attribute it to COVID, which is uh, just untrue. Um, usually people die from COPD related to other problems, most often infections because their lungs are unable to clear infections very well because there's just so much of the surface area where the uh, immune system would be functioning that's just not there. Um, and so they're just really prone to infections 
COPD gets worse with time. So the longer you have it, the higher risk you are from for getting deathly ill from an infection that may not have killed you if you did not have COPD. So, um, so just saying that, oh, because these have two similar images, that means people are mistaking them or intentionally mistaking them is, is anecdotally wrong too. From my experience, I've, I've not seen anybody hedging their bets and leaning towards COVID in their diagnosis. And I've been around this enough and around enough different types of doctors that I, I just in my experience alone, haven't seen any signs of this. And I haven't seen a lot of in the sort of physician communities I'm a part of, I haven't seen a lot of people. I've seen people talk about how people talk about this, but I haven't seen anyone say, oh man, I'm tired of the CDC making me lie, or uh, I, I can't believe we called this that diagnosis and things like that. It's, it's not a common thing to see um, where there's tons and tons of physicians um, being open and honest about all kinds of things, good opinions, bad opinions, uh, data. It's, it's odd that they would make such a bold statement and have no way to, to really back it up. They mentioned the CDC guidelines about like the presumed di- diagnosis and cause of death. And that is absurd in that like they, they don't even cite the actual guidelines and look at what they're like. And at the end of the day, you know, you, you ultimately it's up to you, the physician who's filling it out to make the decision. There's the implied um, compensation. And I don't know a ton about this, but I guess the thought I had on it recently was, you know, if it, the, the government had promised to pay for anyone who gets COVID and needs to go to the hospital. So anytime you get a diagnosis of COVID, the hospital has to eat those costs unless the government pays for them. So you get a COVID case and you can confirm it or come as close as you can, then yeah, you're going to get some amount of money for it. Uh, is that amount of money the right amount of money to give? That's a good question, and I don't have the answer to that, um, but there, that's more of a, a, a nuanced um, issue within the finances of medicine that is, is, can be quite horrific. Um, but it's a completely different issue. Um, I'll, I'll get into this in a minute, but the, there's, there's so many nuances to that. You can't just say because there's money going to the hospital, something is clearly wrong. There could be wrong things within that process. Uh, but the thing that they are pointing to is just factually inaccurate. Another statement that uh, Dr. Makovitz makes is that you don't die with an infection, you die from an infection. I, I don't know why she said this. I mean, it's, there, people have latent infections all the time. Anyone who dies, anyone who's gotten herpes, which is a large population of the world, will die with the virus. People with HIV who are taking antiretrovirals most likely will die from something else and still have the virus other people will die from their viruses. So I, I don't know why she chose this line of words um, to make it sound so profound when it's just so easily proven to be inaccurate. Another point she makes is how hydroxychloroquine is has gotten ignored um, and that it's effective. 
I've already talked about this in the first episode, but it's been clearly shown to not be effective. And while it may have maybe minimal benefit, it's got enough of a toxicity profile to cause arrhythmias and other complications that there are other ways you can help mitigate and and, and treat without uh, all of that risk. Uh, so it's odd that she... And then she talks about it like it's proven, but then you look at the research that I had discussed before, and the research stinks. So it's odd that she would sound so definitive and confident in something where there's no definitive answers or confidence in the least that it does anything helpful in any really meaningful way. And then she also says that the AMA is threatening to take your license if you prescribe it. Which is also, it's, it's silly because the AMA does not have the ability to do that. The AMA is an association like a club on a campus. They have a lot of doctors who are members and they charge you hundreds of dollars every year for a membership. So they have a lot of money and they have a lot of sponsors so they can maybe have some influence, but they, are, they do not give people their uh, medical license. Um, They just lobby for legislation and provide education. They produce a journal every week, but they don't really, they they wouldn't be able to take away your, your license. It's also an odd claim because I've seen people get prescribed hydroxychloroquine and either they're a maverick doctor who doesn't care about evidence or the AMA taking away their license and blackballing them, or there's no consequence of prescribing hydroxychloroquine, and maybe the patient was just demanding it. And unfortunately, doctors are ruled by Yelp reviews and customer service reviews, and sometimes customers will demand something, and sometimes if it's a patient and not a customer and they're demanding something, if it seems like there wouldn't be any harm, like maybe the patient doesn't have any heart problems, then you're like, well, I guess I'll, I'll give them medication. But um, again, there's an ethical problem there because people who need hydroxychloroquine, like people with rheumatic diseases like lupus, um, need that medication. And so if you kind of redirect the meds to someone who doesn't need it, um, you know, the supply will start to run out for the people who really do. And we're already seeing some signs of, of medication shortages. But I think now that there's a more open discussion about the poor quality evidence of hydroxychloroquine, I think we can kind of move on from that and let the people who need it get it. Next big point they make is that the flu vaccine increases your odds of getting coronavirus by 36%. Now, what they're referring to is a study published in a journal called Vaccine in October of 2019. And they were looking at veterans during the 2017-2018 flu season. So they weren't even looking at the current coronavirus. They were looking at the old coronaviruses, the more, uh, the ones that are associated with the common cold that some people probably early on in the pandemic were talking about in comment sections when people were starting to to panic um, and we knew even less than we now know. But um, 
essentially what the study shows is they looked at people who were vaccinated um, and then they looked at people who were unvaccinated um, with the flu vaccine and then looked at respiratory viruses. This is including flu, coronavirus, um, RSV, which is the respiratory syncytial virus, another cause of the common cold, but a, a large swath of, of different viruses that cause respiratory illness. And if you look at all of the data of respiratory illnesses, it looks like the flu vaccine might provide pr protection from other viruses, but it may just not really interact at all with your immune system or your ability to fight off other infections. There's a small blip in the data that makes it look like you have a 30% risk of getting a coronavirus infection. However, that, that data is in the context of an older virus, uh, the more common virus, the less likely odds of that happening. Now, there's always a possibility we can look retrospectively in the data and find that, that there was some sort of a connection. But this one study um, is not as definitive in, in the way that they talk about it. Now, the, an interesting concept that they allude to is this, this concept of, of knocking down the immunity uh, or knocking down your immune system. And, and this actually happens, but it happens in the case of other illnesses. The, the one that's been best characterized in literature is measles virus. So measles can actually kill off memory cells that your immune system uses as sort of like the storage to prepare to see another pathogen that it had come across that it's ready to mount a defense against. If you get measles, you're, you can lose immunity to other things that you were previously immune to. So it's not that it's a made-up thing. It's just they're, they're really taking, and taking the ball and running with it uh, with, with one, one study that overall has limited at best applicability. Another thing they talk about is um, how the medical community is ignoring Suramin, which is a an old anti-parasitic medication that she says is is as a is a miracle cure for autism. I looked into this and I found that there's one trial from a guy who works in his own lab at UCSD with ten patients, and this was back in 2017. And while it was a well-controlled clinical trial. And the guy has a nice appointment at the School of Medicine in San Diego. This was one study. He hasn't published anything since, but it seems like an interest of his. So if there is anything uh, of value there, I'd be shocked if he's not still studying it as that is something not only is one of his multiple, he's got so many studies on, on cell studies to try to, and mouse models to show that this could work and that he's published prior to this study in 2017, that it would be odd that he would just give it up while he still talks about it on, on his lab's website. And again, he's got a prominent job at a, at a big-time medical school in the country. Um, so saying that we're suppressing it somehow or that people don't know about it, it it's, it's, again, an odd statement because it's pretty, pretty out in the open um, and easy to find. Next part is the guy's uh, Dr. Erickson 
Dr. Masihi, I'm gonna, I'm sure that's wrong. Um, these are the urgent care slash ER doctors. They do something really funny that um, that you see people like Dr. Oz do, and some of the other doctors in this documentary. But they always wear scrubs every time they're on the TV, and it's it's discussed in other blogs. But when you see a doctor, they're on TV wearing scrubs as a way to sort of show like apparent authority or apparent competence. You know, the the guy from that show, The Doctors, he wears scrubs and he's hosting a TV show. It, it, it's like a little costume that you put on to, to show everybody like, hey, the big boy is here and he's going to he's going to tell you some real truth about medicine because I've got my scrubs on. So I know I don't know. It's just very silly. And, and I mean, more often than not, most doctors don't wear scrubs to work. Wearing scrubs to work is is for people who work in surgical fields and people who work in ERs, people who work weird hours. But the rest of us usually wear more professional clothing. But I do anytime I have the opportunity to wear scrubs, I'll take it. Okay, but so the some some other claims that they made, I, I talked a little bit about what they were saying, and I'll, I'll I'll get back to it in this episode. They they talk about how the immune system drops and how losing valuable bacterial flora from all the hand washing and sanitizing which is um absolutely wrong like first of all even if you're quarantined and you're sanitizing most surfaces the air is full of viruses and and fungal spores and you know you name it there's so much stuff in the air that you are constantly inundated with potential pathogens I mean, it's just it's everywhere. You step outside to go in the backyard and you're stepping into a world of even more different types of things that have the potential to infect you. So unless you are inside a metal box that is 500 degrees, maybe even hotter, you wouldn't be able to be in a real true sterile environment. What they're kind of alluding to, though, is maybe the uh, this hypothesis called the hygiene hypothesis, which essentially says that because we do have like clean water and a lot of parasites in the first world are not around as much, and so when we when we kind of hang out and we have parts of the immune system are adapted really specifically for different types of things that can infect you, so. The I talked last time about um, IgM and IgG. There's a subtype of immune globulin called IgE, and that one is mostly dedicated towards parasitic infections. We don't get a lot of parasites in most of the first world, and so this whole section of the immune system is really unused. But we'd evolved to have it. Um, we've only been in a more sterile environment for a shorter period of time. And some treatments that we have actually are indicated to block IgE because it seems to be involved in causing infections. Part of that comes from being part of the immune system that's sort of laying dormant. Um, but it's really more related to your T helper cells. There's Th1 and Th2 T helper cells that are, that are kind of partial part of what's involved in regulating some of this um, Ig switching and, and class subtypes, and if you're if you're minimally activating the system, you get an imbalance of Th1 and Th2, and that can lead down the road of producing more cells that 
create IgE, and then you now are just starting to build up IgE for whatever you can, and then you often build it to things that are in the air in abundance, like pollens and wherever you live. But I don't think that's what they meant. Uh, <laughs> I think they're um, kind of over-exaggerating an understanding of of the immune system. And they're and when they're saying the immune system drops, it's really, yeah, it's hard to say like what they really mean by that. Again, like there are processes like the measles infection that can knock out parts of your immune system, but that's not what they're saying. They're saying staying inside for a few months is going to make you able to get infected by anything. And again, you're just being around your house and, and stepping into your front yard or backyard or hallway outside your apartment or wherever, you're, you're going to come across a ton of things to keep your immune system stimulated. Again, weird and wrong claims by these guys. And then just to revisit their other big claim to, to reopen the country is they're, they, they're saying that the, the coronavirus is not as deadly than, than we think. But the way that they figured this out is they got a ton of tests at their urgent care clinics in the Bakersfield area. And people found out about that and they were telling people about it. And people were going to their clinics, giving them lots of money and getting tested for coronavirus. So tons of people who just wanted to get it done, get it done. And it turns out that about 6.5% of the people who go into their ER and ask for the test are showing up positive, which is uh, kind of inflate is going to be inflating the numbers um, already because you have people going in and seeking the test. And then they're also and then they're extracting um, or interpreting that data to mean that 6.5% of the people in, that come to our ER have this. That means 6.5% of the population has this. So if, that, if you applied that number, that would say that in just the Bakersfield area alone, if 6.5% of those people had it, that'd be 58,000 cases, and which is significantly higher than the actual number of cases in the Bakersfield area. I think it's in the four or five hundreds at this point. So they're really, really inflating the numbers there. The Then that's going to really bring down the case fatality rate. And another, so the issue with case fatality rate is sort of stated in other episodes is um, it's hard to say, you know, with limited testing and there's there's the possibility that it's not as deadly but there's also a possibility, because we're not as good at testing, that it's way more deadly. Who's to say? But if you're going to say it so confidently, um, at least don't have such bad math that's easily addressed to be wrong. Another claim is that these people are getting sick from their own virus. I just don't understand what the heck she's talking about there. And reinfecting the virus, then just a confusing series of statements that she again like no at no point really discusses any evidence or suggestion that that's true we don't know if you can get reinfected by it in the first place and it also kind of sort of implies that people are constantly wearing their masks and i know i do see people who are wearing their masks when they're driving which is excessive but overall you know people have them on and off they're not just constantly 
mouth breathing into their mask. So I don't, I'm not sure like why she said it so confidently and um, why that was such an important point. They also, again, point out that nobody is bringing out dissenting opinions. Meanwhile, Erickson and Masihi from, from Bakersfield are getting interviewed on TV. They're getting their videos all over the place. They're getting invited to talk places. So these guys are doing great being dissenters. You get a lot of attention being a dissenter. So it's a little odd. I mean, a lot of people probably never heard of Dr. Mikovitis. Bef- Mikovitis? Yeah. Um, before Mikovitz, there it is. Um, before uh, this had all come out. So, okay. And then the last point, um, more of a loose analogy here, but they, they kind of close on, um, on um, Dr. Fauci um, predicting a, a forthcoming outbreak. Um, I don't know why, but it just reminded me of when people were freaking out about when Biggie Smalls says, blow up white, like the world trade. Be like, this is Anthony Fauci's blow up like the world trade. He said, in a few years, there there will be some kind of a pandemic. I don't know. People make a lot of bold predictions. Alshon Jeffrey said, my team is going to win the Super Bowl next year. And then he got traded to the Eagles, and then they won the Super Bowl. Um, does that mean that Alshon Jeffrey predicted the Super Bowl and either one cheated or to some other nefarious plot was it play? Um, and it's just a just a dumb point. Um, it's like flat out, like it doesn't mean anything. This, I guess, leads to another good point is. Well, I say all of these things about like criticizing some of these people who maybe are speaking out against Dr. Fauci and other um, organizations like the CDC, et cetera. I don't really care for Dr. Fauci either um, in some of the things that he does. You know, like the I've talked about how the evidence for remdesivir has been lackluster so far. And the, um, the study, the China study that came out around the same time as the NIH press release about the promising study on remdesivir when the China study showed that it had no benefit. It's weird that he's still so um, dead set on on it being a game changer when it seems like it may be not much of a game changer at all. I'd like it to be a good thing, but it just, so far, the data is not very promising. We've got, again, like a lot of things that have biological plausibility that could work and in cell studies did work, but then you put it in the human system and then it stops working. Remdesivir has had this problem before and it might have it again. Uh, It's things like that that um, lead me to another big point is these kinds of conspiracy type videos, documentaries, documentaries and big, big quotes. They, they lack nuance in the sort of message that they send. They kind of paint a picture of the whole system being terrible. They're trying to kill you, mind control you, mind control you, control your mind. You know, things like that where, and that these things are almost all, they're all or nothing, um, which is a dangerous way to think about the world and is often <laughs> indicated in some mental illness um, I, not saying that this line of thinking is an indication of mental illness. It's, it's more of a, an, a, a human 
quality. Um, but all or nothing thinking can lead down um, some some pathological um, thought process. Um, but the lack of nuance, I mean, the the this the AMA, for example, is this a big money lobbyist group of um, physicians, but they also produce a journal that often um, is one place to go for higher quality research publications. So I don't want to support the AMA, but I might check out an article from them and see if the article is any good and evaluate it on its own merits. You can't, like, when the things get so big on this level, it's it's really absurd to look to or, or say that everything is corrupt and that uh, that there's no way that you can find any objective truth when there is objective truth available. Now, there are, there are plenty of times where information can be hidden, and that's, that's fair. That's a fair point to bring up, but you, you also can't be immune to evidence when you're discussing things or trying to discuss them with someone. There, there's always context to the, this kind of information. There are human beings involved that are fallible human beings. And so I don't, I don't wish ill on anyone who, who has maybe a conspiracy-leaning thought process or believes in conspiracies. Um, I, I just, it's frustrating because sometimes their beliefs can be harmful to people and that their beliefs are often fixed and immune to evidence. But again, they're human, just like the people involved in the big machine. Um, some of them are maybe less human than others, but at the end of the day, there's mostly human beings at the wheel here. Um, and then the last bit is just the money. Um, people keep making references to, to money being a big part of this. And while it is, of course it is, uh, we live in, in a capitalistic society and we have a for-profit healthcare system and that's not how I would like our healthcare system to be run, but that is the unfortunate way that it is. And so well-meaning researchers have to have complicated relationships with some of these financial institutions but they can show their hand by you looking into the quality of their data and the way that they interpret results. Um, I read a study in when I was working on my bachelor's degree uh, that they were looking at cognitive dysfunction caused by alcohol while consuming tobacco, and they found that female mice actually did okay on these mental tests compared to male mice if they were not just drunk but also taking in nicotine and it turns out that that study was funded by philip morris and so it was like well what an odd conclusion and what an odd study i guess it's sort of interesting to see that maybe there's some sort of difference in people's biology that could lead to some kind of difference in the cognitive function. But overall, you know, the general neuroscience is not gendered. Um, there's, there's a lot of unfortunate history of people thinking that the male brain and the female brain have some, some major differences, but these are biological organs. If you look at them objectively, they're very much the same. The, you know, the rest of it is all the nuance that makes anyone an individual. There, um, I think that's a big 
ideological point to end on. Oh, last thing, um, the money piece to, I guess, uh, these, these, um, folks on this documentary, um, you know, Dr. Movitz is just releasing a book. So this is getting her a lot of attention, probably get a lot of money for her book. The guy who makes this documentary, like makes all kinds of documentaries. Um, those doctors are making money hand over fist on selling COVID tests and then getting on TV. So the sort of fame and money element is, is kind of moot because it's like, well, you can get, you can stand to make a ton more money, honestly, if you, if you came out as, as kind of full of BS, um, because you can, one, you're not beholden to facts and, and two, you can just stir up people's emotions. I mean, if you watch this documentary, they do a lot of things to stir up your emotions. They talk about the tragic case of this woman's legal issues with her lab. And while I won't get into that because it's not as interesting to me as the actual facts that they misrepresent, you know, they're, they're giving you the story to pull you in and then everything else they say you're going to roll with because you're compelled by their story. But they're just full as full of crap as, as so many of the people that they're calling out. So again, it's uh, there's so much lack of nuance there that I wish that they had. I'm sure I'll think of other important points that I would like to have made about this documentary, and I know that there's going to be more chapters in it coming out. I kind of hope that it turns into like Zeitgeist, where like the last chapter is just about how we need to like make art and love each other. But who knows? So that'll that'll be the end of of my uh, special pandemic episode. Usually these episodes come out on Sundays. I'm trying to do more if possible. Again, I'm on a crazy schedule. I worked um, midnight to eight a.m. today, um, so you're hearing this um, after a nine-hour shift. Thanks for your time, and please uh, keep listening. Tell your friends, tell their friends over a Skype call and a Zoom meeting and Gchat and FaceTime and AOL Instant Messenger. There you go. Okay. (laughs) Um, Thanks a lot, guys. And that's been what I can say. Thanks.